Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities with Public Schools Unite Us initiative and United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Governor Kathy Hochul signed the measure known as Clean Slate. It allows New Yorkers who have been convicted of some crimes and who have served their time to have their records sealed in order to get jobs and public housing. But as the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports, there is already backlash from Republicans in the state legislature. The law allows records to be sealed for misdemeanors and many felonies. Governor Hochul says she views it as a crime prevention measure because it enables people to restart their lives and to be less likely to return to crime. I believe that if someone has served their debt to society and the option is to be on the street committing more crimes or sitting in an office or in a work site with a good paying job to support their families, I will choose that individual to be gainfully employed and and continue to contribute to society versus being on the street. The clean slate law still allows police, daycare centers, and nursing homes access to the criminal records in order to do background checks. Sex offenders are not eligible for clean slate, and Class A felonies, including murder, terrorism, kidnapping, and possession of large amounts of illegal drugs are also excluded, says Hochul. Whether it's a judge looking to uh, issue an order of protection and weigh the evidence and the history, whether it's a prosecutor, a police officer, or even an employer at a school or a a place where background checks are customary, uh, particularly if there's a fingerprint involved, a place where we have senior citizens, a daycare center, a nursing home. So all of those areas are off limits. The law is backed by business groups, including the state's business council and the New York City Partnership, as well as the major labor unions. Two million New Yorkers are expected to benefit from the law. But Republicans in the state legislature say the measure goes too far and will only contribute to a crime spike that's been occurring in recent years. In a statement, Senate GOP leader Robert Ort says the law allows for criminals convicted of some of the most violent offenses, including hate crimes, to have their records sealed during a time when there's rising anti-Semitism. Ort says the victims of crimes and their families don't get a clean slate. Senator Dean Murray, a Republican from Long Island, was among those at a press conference Friday opposing the new law. Senator Murray says without the law, people convicted of crimes could appeal to a judge on an individual basis to have their records sealed. That was one of the fallacies that that was being sold when they were pitching this, is this is the only way. If you don't support this, you don't believe in second chances. That's just not true. We already have a system that allows for those second chances. And cases have been sealed when it's appropriate. Murray represents portions of Suffolk County, where a Republican, Ed Romaine, running on a law and order platform, beat a Democrat in the race for county executive earlier this month. In 2022, the GOP candidate for governor, Lee Zeldin, came in a close second to Democrat Hochul after Zeldin made crime a campaign issue. Democrats also lost four congressional seats to Republicans. Zeldin and other GOP candidates focused on the state's controversial bail reform laws approved by Democrats in 2019. Senator Patricia Canzanieri Fitzpatrick, also a Long Island Republican, is among those already comparing clean slate to bail reform. 
damage is going to be done, just like we're seeing from bail reform. We all have to wait for the tragedies to happen as a result of this. The measure is likely to become an issue in the 2024 elections. They include all seats in the state legislature, the state seats in the U.S. House of Representatives, and the U.S. Senate seat held by Kirsten Gillibrand. Hochul says she knows that there will be political blowback from the new law, but she says opponents are distorting it. I believe there'll be a lot of distortions about what we're doing here today. It'll be weaponized by the Republican Party, as they are wont to do, but uh, the truth is important to get out there. And she says the truth is that clean slate will result in fewer crimes. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. The New York State Court of Appeals heard arguments last week in the state's redistricting case that will determine whether congressional maps need to be redrawn before the 2024 election. Reporting for the Legislative Gazette, WRVO's Ava Pukach has more. Misha Statlin is a lawyer working for the Republicans who are opposed to changing the maps again. Stateland says if the petitioners prevail, a, quote, inevitable gerrymander will be challenged in court again. And what the people did in adopting the anti-gerrymandering amendments, not only did they set up an exclusive process and a prohibition against partisan gerrymandering, they also concluded in the second sentence of 4E that mid-decade redistricting is particularly dangerous. Judge Jenny Rivera asked if what the court did was correcting the violation of the legislature, meaning the remedy was temporary, saying the court was focused on the timing of the next election. If we disagree with you on the violation that's that's being cured mm-hmm. through Harkin-Ryder, and that plan exists for a temporary period of time, isn't the plan that's in place then the prior plan, which is is not... In, um, uh, is not in accord with the Constitution. Aria Branch, a lawyer working for the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, says the promise of the redistricting amendments has been deferred, but it need not be denied. Branch said they're seeking the completion of the Independent Redistricting Commission, or IRC, process. We are not challenging the maps, but uh, the, the remedy that was ordered in Harkin-Rider did not cure the procedural violation at issue in this case, which was the failure of the IRC to send a second map to the legislature. Judge Michael Garcia expressed skepticism. The the promulgation of the maps on February 3rd completely took the IRC out of the out of the picture. So it, it seems as if you want to kind of have it both ways. You want the IRC process or do you just want a set of maps that you know, that complies or conforms to what you think the maps should be. It's not clear when the court will make a decision. In Syracuse, I'm Ava Pukach. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. This week I sat down for a conversation with Blair Horner, executive director of the New York Public Interest Research Group. And we began by speaking about ethics reform. 
and whether New York will ever have an unbiased watchdog. In terms of ethics reform in New York, if there is any legislation absent something large, which I'll talk about in a second, I think it's going to be largely based on proposals that are being advanced by the state ethics agency, the Commission on Ethics and Lobbying in Government. They're putting together a legislative package. And if there's a debate at all, I would expect that it would be on their proposals and stuff that's related to that. Now, that being said, former Governor Andrew Cuomo has filed a lawsuit against the state ethics agency to block their efforts to claw back what they describe as his ill-gotten gains from the $5 million book deal. And he's challenging that by saying that the way that they're organized, the ethics agencies organized under the law, is unconstitutional. If the court rules in his favor, that blows up the ethics agency, and then you have a much larger conversation that would occur to figure out how do you deal with the ramifications of that. But absent that, I think that most of whatever ethics issues will emerge will be in response to what the state ethics agency advances or issues around how the state's new campaign finance voluntary system of public financing is playing out going into its first election cycle. I think that's where the rubber will hit the road in that area in terms of what ethics reforms would look like. More small bore unless the courts blow up the ethics agency. How much is the fact that legislators in New York are part-time impact the potential for maybe not so honest services? Well, they have changed the system a bit when they gave themselves these massive raises. They are now making, I think it's around $140,000 for what they say is a part-time job. And there's no meaningful restrictions on outside income currently, although there are some that do go into effect starting in 2025. So the elected class of 2024, whatever they do, there will be some restrictions in terms of their ability to have uh, outside income. What will they be, Blair, do you know? Well, it's limited to a certain amount of money. I believe it's 25% of the legislative salary. So okay. they can work as a professor at SUNY Albany as an adjunct. Easily teach, below and, the and, threshold and, there. And teach an adjunct class <laughs> or two. But they wouldn't be able to really be a partner in a law firm. Got it. Uh, or be dealing with working in a hedge fund or something like Which that. Which is where some of these issues are. That's exactly right? right. And I mean, even the very powerful speaker, Sheldon Silver, found that out. That's right. Well, that, that's what tripped him up yep. uh, was outside income in terms of a law firm that nobody knew he was involved in. That's Blair Horner, executive director of the New York Public Interest Research Group. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The U.S. Coast Guard has paused a change that Hudson Valley officials say would have opened up the river to increase barge traffic and new anchorages. As the Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard reports, the news is being celebrated by Congressman Pat Ryan, who's exploring new legislation to address the issue. Ryan, a Democrat from New York's 18th House District, announced that the Coast Guard temporarily paused moving ahead on a change in definition that environmental nonprofits and public officials worried would end anchoring restrictions on the Hudson River north of the Mario M. Cuomo Bridge. A change to the definition of the Port of New York would have designated much of the Hudson Valley as an inland waterway just two years after Congress passed restrictions outlawing new anchorages. Ryan welcomed the news just weeks after pressing the Coast Guard for answers. Well, some very good and encouraging news this week. After the community 
rallied all together and said, we fought this fight before a few years ago. We, we stopped attempts to turn the Hudson River into a parking lot for these dangerous barges with oil and asphalt and other toxic materials. And now again, to see the Coast Guard try to do it um, was very concerning. And we, we raised a, a strong and broad uh, opposition to it. Ryan said the Coast Guard has committed to gathering public input, but has not yet released a timeline of when that process will begin. Until then, the Democrat says constituents can leave their comments on his House website. Uh, we have a form up there for folks to, to give their input now. And then um, once the Coast Guard actually announces their official process, we can make sure all those folks are directed to that. The former Ulster County executive adds he's considering new legislation to strengthen the restrictions initially approved by Congress in 2021. We're exploring legislative options there right now. I think um, we think there are some paths and and should have uh, more news there in in the very near term. Earlier this week, a letter sent by Ryan and a bipartisan coalition of elected officials in the Hudson Valley to Coast Guard Captain Zeta Merchant cited concerns over impacts on an area of the river that 100,000 people rely on as their source of drinking water. The letter reads in part, quote, We will continue to support and fight for a Hudson River that is free from commercial barges that threaten the health of our families and ecosystem, end quote. Democratic Westchester County Executive George Latimer on Wednesday cheered the development. The problem is, is that when you try to store such items in an anchorage uh, above a dotted line. Nothing stops an oil uh, fuel spill or an accident on the water that could pollute downstream uh, communities that fall within the protected zone. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard. The village of Addison in Steuben County is facing a major financial loss. Reporting for the Legislative Gazette, WSKG's Natalie Abruzzo reports the loss comes after the former village clerk-treasurer was arrested earlier this month for the alleged theft of more than $1 million from village funds. Longtime Village of Addison employee Ursula Stone was arrested earlier this month. She allegedly stole $1.1 million from the village over 19 years. The annual budget for the Village of Addison was just $1.6 million, according to Nelson Scheingold, chief legal officer for the Office of the State Comptroller. He was involved in the state audit investigation. Scheingold says it is clear Stone had unfettered access and discretion to money, records, and accounts. Watch your money. Put in appropriate controls. Double-check everything that's going on because you don't want to be subject to the next press conference. You don't want to have to explain to the voters what's going on, and you are charged with watching the people's money. Stone worked as the village clerk and treasurer. She was the only full-time employee there. She was employed by the village from 1997 until earlier this year. She resigned in March. The investigation found Stone was in charge of and operating all financial procedures with no oversight by village officials. Here's Steuben County District Attorney Brooks Baker. This case is kind of demonstrative of a lot of cases we see um, in in our smaller communities where, um, you know, we we have part-time governments. Um, We have essentially volunteer uh, mayors and village boards who are doing their, their, their best and a lot of trust is placed in one person. And um, unfortunately, that, that trust all too often is as here abused. 
Village of Addison Mayor Robert Miles declined a request for comment. It's not clear if changes were made to safeguard checks and balances. It's also not clear how much, if any, money can be recovered for the village. Stone is facing nearly 200 felony counts, including falsifying business records, money laundering, grand larceny, and government and public corruption. Bail was set at $20,000. She is due back in court on January 24th. I'm Natalie Abruzzo. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. A Capital Region semiconductor manufacturer is celebrating the role of women in technology, even while acknowledging there's a long way to go. The Legislative Gazette's Alexander Babby with more. Global Foundries, headquartered in Malta, is advancing efforts to bring more women into tech fields. Speaking Monday at a conference in Saratoga Springs, Dr. Isabel Ferrain, the company's vice president for engineering, said even though they often find they're the only woman in engineering rooms, women should stay determined. It doesn't mean that you don't belong there. It means that you have to identify male allies, um, can be your professors, can be your peers, can be students who are ahead of you. So don't give up because engineering is fun. It's about uh, resolving challenges. It's about um, being innovative, um, creating um, new solutions. So it's a lot of fun. Don't give up. Um, and you'll find allies. The most important is don't stay on your own. Reach out. Don't be afraid of reaching out. I've rarely heard no when I reached out for help. Dr. Thomas Caulfield, the current CEO, says Global Foundries wants to be a 50-50 workforce. It's at 25% now and hire a female CEO. The company has nearly 13,000 employees. Caulfield is a trustee of Union College in Schenectady. He says women are already being held to higher standards than men. What I learned in this role, uh, I'm, I'm on the admissions committee, um, and as, as if you have children going to college, this is what you should know. First of all, early decision, if you want to get to your school, go early decision, right? Everybody knows that. The second thing is the criteria to admit males versus females is lower in college or schools would have 60% female only 40%. So many schools, they try to get a balanced population as close as they can to 50-50. To be able to do that, they actually have to have a, a lower criteria for men. And that's not just uni college, that's all institutions. According to the Society of Women Engineers, although the percentage of STEM workers who are women has increased with time, the percentage of women in engineering is still low, with women making up 16% of those in engineering and architecture-related fields and 26.7% of those in computer and mathematical operations, while the percentage of women in most STEM fields solely increased, according to SWE, the percentage of women in computer and math occupations has fallen from its high of 35% in 1990. As a result, Caulfield says, there is no reason for female underrepresentation. Ferrain, who is also global executive sponsor of Global Foundry's employee resource group Global Women, agrees. Give everyone a chance. Don't make the decision on behalf of women or underrepresented minorities. Give them a chance to compete. And so don't assume that because um, 
men or women have um, children, have parental duties or look after family members um, that they're not fit for the job. Give them the, the opportunity, have the discussion. So I think it's important to get rid of that bias that um, those who are in charge of family or um, looking after a parent are not capable of uh, leading a successful and rewarding career. Ferrain says gender bias plays a role in long-held beliefs that parents are less capable workers. Global Foundries allows employees to work from home at least three days a week. The Global Women Conference is held every fall in the capital region. For next year, I can tell you we want to be even more inclusive from um, students from nearby schools and from leaders from other companies so that um, it's not only limited to global foundries, what we do here to empower women to grow. Um, we actually want to um, bring along on this journey other local leaders and um, students and uh, female engineers. Ferrain says internships remain a key stepping stone into the industry. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Alexander Babby. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. A new exhibit at Vassar College highlights the personal papers of the renowned 20th century poet Elizabeth Bishop with a fun twist. The Legislative Gazette's Jesse King takes a look. Lining the halls of Vassar's stately Thompson Library are tables and tables of postcards, from your standard scenic photographs to kitschy tokens and handmade collages. The private college in Poughkeepsie has been amassing a collection of Bishop's personal papers and correspondence ever since her death in 1979. Ronald Patkiss, the college's historian and head of special collections, says Elizabeth Bishop's papers is now one of Vassar's most valuable and heavily used collections to date, but her postcards have never gotten the spotlight until now. The postcards for many years were ignored, probably precisely because they were postcards. But now, scholar, you know, scholars are taking newer interest in material culture. And as it turns out, in our collection, we have over 500 examples of postcards. We think there are probably more out there in the world today. But that's, that's a great part of our archive that hasn't really been explored. Packus credits guest curators Dr. Jonathan Ellis from the University of Sheffield and Susan Rosenbaum from the University of Georgia for the idea. Together, the three poured over Vassar's collection and singled out 55 jewels spanning from her early life to her final years. Packus says they're pretty fragile and they couldn't have guests handling and flipping over the cards themselves, so they had to get creative. We usually will put the uh, front of the picture with the original, but we had uh, facsimiles made of the back. <laughs> but they came out really well, I think. Bishop studied English at Vassar and graduated in 1934, hence the college's determination to collect her work. Born in 1911, Patkiss says she had a turbulent childhood. Her father died less than a year after her birth, and Bishop's mother was institutionalized in 1916. However, Bishop went on to make a wide circle of friends, including some of her classmates at Vassar, like Franny Blau Muser. Patkiss says Muser was a frequent recipient of Bishop's postcards, as were other famous artists and poets at the time, like Lauren McIver and James Merrill. The postcard as a format was very popular sort of in the early and middle 20th century. Late, late century too, but, but especially middle. And there were like literally millions of them that were sent around the world. But especially looking at Bishop, we can see therefore how she used the postcard in her life. 
Um, and that's some of the, the things that the, uh, that the curators tried to bring out. Bishop's inheritance from her father gave her the ability to travel extensively over the course of her life. On display at the Vassar exhibit are postcards from Rome, Paris, Key West, Boston, and particularly Brazil, where Bishop lived for 15 years after developing a relationship with the architect Lota de Macedo Suarez. Pekka says there's a few cards that were clearly her favorites. He says Bishop had multiple copies of a bright red cartoonish postcard reading You Don't Know Beans Until You've Been to Boston in big letters across the front. He suspects the cards were both an outlet for Bishop's sense of humor and her creativity. One section of the exhibit called X Marks the Spot showcases how Bishop would draw on or notate her postcards to demonstrate her own ties to a site. For example, on the back of an unsent postcard from Great Village in Nova Scotia, where Bishop spent her early childhood, she notes, quote, I drove the cow to pasture up this road, end quote. Another card delivered to her doctor, Annie Bowman, features a painting of the Library of Congress, with a small X in the upper left-hand corner, marking the office where Bishop served as a consultant in poetry in 1949. Pekka says Bishop even dabbled in making her own cards from scratch. In one postcard, Bishop and a friend stick their heads through a cardboard cutout, posing as boxers. This is Bishop on the right. One That's thing cool. I find in looking at this exhibit is, um, you know, it's very visual. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it pulls you in just to see all the different images. But then there's also real interesting things happening in the texts as well. Um, some, you know, certain aspects of her life or things that she was thinking about. Mm -hmm. So both things are really are kind of important. In all, the Vassar exhibit contains 12 categories of postcards for visitors to dig through. Bishop's poems and short stories would go on to win nearly every literary honor and prize in the United States, including a Pulitzer. That said, she wasn't a particularly prolific writer, publishing only a handful of books in her lifetime. And unlike some of her contemporaries, like Robert Lowell, Bishop didn't incorporate many intimate details from her life into her work. Packa says that's part of why Bishop's correspondence is so important and fascinating. It gives scholars a glimpse into her personal life. He hopes the exhibit will bring additional cards and letters out of the woodwork because the demand for Bishop's papers is on the rise. There's been just a, a real interest in her work, and it has not, uh, you know, it's grown, and it seems, you know, almost every year there's, you know, books, articles uh, coming out, conferences have been held, entire conferences devoting to, devoted to Elizabeth Bishop. There's just a number of scholars who are very interested in, in, you know, in her oeuvre. Elizabeth Bishop's postcards will remain on view at the Thompson Library through the fall semester. By way of disclosure, Vassar College is home to WAMC's Hudson Valley Bureau. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Jesse King. And that about does it for this week's show. The Legislative Gazette is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. You can listen to the Legislative Gazette anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Look for program number 2347. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina. Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org.